Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. This church that God has called together and made a family and and that I love, God has blessed me with, my wife with, my family with. I'm, good to be, I'm grateful to be with you. It's not a, a privilege that I take for granted. We want to look together at the Word of God this morning, Matthew 17, 14 through 23, immediately after the, the transfiguration of Christ on the mountaintop with Peter, James, and John. They come down from the mountain and we take up the word of God at that point at verse 14. So stand with me, would you, as we look together at the word of God. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's a lunatic and is very ill. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him and the demon came out of him and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. He will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and I pray that you will speak to us through it. May my words not be mere words, but may they be accompanied by your Holy Spirit and with his power, and may they bring conviction and flow from conviction in me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It is perhaps a bit unclear what is going on in this passage, at least at first, I think thought and comparison with other of the Gospels which relate the same event make it more clear what is going on, although there's enough here for us to preach on, I will seek to make it more clear by telling you what what we know from especially the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has been on the mountain where he was transfigured, went up there with Peter, James, and John, they come down from the mountain and they find, they find something going on. There's a crowd. There's a man who comes up to Jesus from the midst of the crowd. It's evident that there has been a failure among his disciples who were asked by this man to heal his son, a demoniac, a lunatic. Um, the son was not healed. The disciples fail, they attempt it, 
And Jesus, in response, says, you unbelieving and perverted or perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? Now, it's a very curious thing that we see taking place here because, because Jesus accuses, apparently generally, all of them of being an unbelieving and perverted generation. You might want to exclude his disciples from that accusation, but when they come up to Jesus afterward in private, after he's healed the boy, and say, why could we not drive it out? He says to them, it's because of the littleness of your faith, the weakness of your faith. And so it's clear that they're included in this unbelieving generation. And it's not just the crowd, it's not just the father, but it is his disciples who are, who are being, who are being criticized by Christ in that statement. It's all the more curious because they actually did try to heal the boy, right? You understand that they actually did try and they failed. And so somewhere between the trying and the failure is the lack of faith. This unbelief that's perverse makes them part of this perverse generation. And as we end, we're not spending time on it, but in verses 22 and 23, Jesus repeats what he says time after time in this final trip. He's on his final trip to Jerusalem where he's going to die. He set his face for Jerusalem, the Bible says. And he tells his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he'll be raised on the third day. And not one part of that do they believe, even though they deeply grieve on this day. You know, they're going, oh, that's terrible. So they have grief and yet they really don't believe either part of that of that proposition or of that prophecy that Jesus has given them that he's going to die and be raised. They don't believe that he's going to die. They don't believe that he's going to be raised. And so they really are an unbelieving and perverse generation, which of course you and I are as well, aren't we? I mean, if, if we're going to think realistically and accuse the, the disciples of un, unbelief and perversion, well then, <laughs> how can we say it about Peter, James, and John, you know, we're included in this because Peter doesn't believe this. Though he calls Jesus the son of God, he tells him to shut up when he says, I'm going to die. Um, and so how can we accuse these men of being unbelieving and perverse and yet hold ourselves up as paragons of faith? You're better than Peter. You're better than James. You're better than John. I am too. We're all okay. We're good. No, this is an accusation that should bring some, some chagrin, some weight into our own hearts. We should hear it and say, huh, could that be me? Now what's going on here? Why is this, um, why is this a controversy? Why is Jesus upset with them? It's not just their failure. We read in Mark, when they came back from the mountaintop of the Mount of Transfiguration to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around the disciples and some scribes were arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up. And then the, it put, continues on as we read it. But there's this additional uh, information in Mark that the disciples are in the midst of a conflict. And Jesus' opponents, the ones who attacked him time after time, the scribes are there as well. And there's an argument going back and forth. And what we conclude from that is that there's some kind of a power showdown going on here. The disciples are innocently asked by this father to heal his son. It's an absolutely innocent 
request. It is a, a genuine request, and he comes and says, look, can you heal my son? And he has reason to ask them this because they have done this before. But when they seek to do it on this occasion with this young man, they fail, and they fail, and Jesus makes the reason that they fail very clear because they lack faith. When they ask, why could we not drive it out? He says, because of the littleness of your faith. You could not drive it out. Now, he defines, as we go on, what that littleness of faith actually was the result of. And we'll come to that. But we, we must understand here in verse 17 that when he says, you unbelieving and perverse generation, he's including not just the scribes, not just the crowd, but even his own disciples who are no doubt being mocked by the scribes for their failure and that mocking of them is an accusation against their master because they take this as an opportunity to impugn Christ's power and to make it clear that he isn't as special as they've been proclaiming him. And so it's in many ways, it's just a, a disaster of an event. But Jesus doesn't say, you tried, good job boys, you gave it your very best shot and you failed, but here I am and I can do it. He says to them, you failed. Your weakness of faith. Oh, you of little faith. And so Jesus rebukes them with the entire generation. You perverse and unbelieving generation. You will not believe. You will not believe. And it's true of our generation as well. We are a perverse and unbelieving generation. You can believe in Jesus and be a perverse and unbelieving generation. Now you're going to say, well, how can that be? Well, these disciples believe in Jesus. They certainly believe in Jesus, but they're a perverse and unbelieving generation. Their faith in Jesus is not true faith. And I speak to you about this today because I love this church. And I love what God is doing and I love the young people that are here and the way God is raising up a generation that I think will be the hope of Toledo and beyond. But you need to understand the reason that we are bringing you into a church, and I'm not speaking today just about Christ the Word, but I'm talking about the church across America that is fabulously weak and where faith has died, where there is very, very little faith. Just this last week, I read in First Things magazine. I don't know if some of you know it. It's, it's an Anglo-Catholic endeavor, very conservative. If, you, if you're the kind of person who likes Hillsdale College, you probably know about First Things. It was founded by Richard John Newhouse. It's a very conservative, somewhat Christian magazine. Um, and if you're in our in our milieu, if you're in this world, you probably know the world I'm talking about that is the first things world, the, you know, the natural law, Roman Catholic, we lead good lives, our kids are conservative, we believe in Hillsdale College, the U.S. Constitution, it's the kind of magazine it is, but it also has pretensions, maybe not pretensions, maybe more than pretensions to academic excellence, this magazine, so it publishes a lot of famous people. Well, this was a professor who has been 
who has been published for many years in the evangelical world at a major evangelical school who has made a name for himself and is thought to be a brilliant teacher of God's word. He's a professor of philosophy, but it's in a college and seminary that are linked. And he has written, and the man's my age, so probably in his 60s now, he's written an article in this, in this First Things journal explaining why reasonable Christians don't take Genesis 1 through 11 literally, but understand it to be mytho-historic. So Adam was not a literal man, and the creation in, in the days and by God was not the way it happened. It was likely by evolution, as science has taught us, but the Bible is nonetheless true. It's just not true that way. And this idea is everywhere. If it's not said about Matthew 1 through 11, it's said about other parts of Scripture. It's, it's kind of the reigning attitude that Scripture, eh, but Jesus and me, mm, you know? Scripture, eh, but boy, I sure am enjoying this life and God is with me. And in the course of my years, I'm going to just briefly attempt to say why we're at the point we are today, okay, before moving on to what faith is. We've lost faith. How did we get here? We are, in the American church today, an unbelieving and perverse generation. How have we come here? The Bible says that in the days after the split of the northern and the southern kingdom into Judea in the south and Samaria in the north, the king of the south, Rehoboam, was under attack and very, very concerned in the early years. But at some point, God established his kingdom under him. And when the Bible says, First Chronicles says, when he grew strong and wealthy, he grew proud and turned away from God. American church was 100 years ago very weak and under attack from outside and especially from within by liberalism, which said that the Bible is not truly the word of God. But there were people back then, like you young men and women today, who believed that God had power. And they said, we're not surrendering to liberalism. I'm not talking about political liberalism. I'm talking about religious liberalism, which says that the word of God contains the word of God, but it's mythic at times, it's not historic. You can't absolutely rely on it, though it's true in a big way. And God raised up a generation of Americans who were the founders of what we call the evangelical movement who fought that. They believed the word of God. They were not wealthy. They were sacrificing people who did sacrificial things. They were poor people. Their churches were not the fancy brick churches. They were the plain churches. Their colleges were not the places where the elites wanted their children to go. They were the, the colleges where the poor people sent their kids, the poor Christians. But they believed the word of God. And out of that movement that came about in the 1920s and 30s in reaction to liberalism, of people saying, no, I believe God. The evangelical movement began and it grew and it grew. 
It grew for decades until the point came that evangelicalism became a force in our nation and became wealthy. And so from a, a period of 100 years when no president had ever claimed to be born again, we came under, actually it really began with Richard Nixon in 1968. But if we skip Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford, who didn't claim to be an evangelical Christian and to believe the Bible, you can go from Jimmy Carter to Ronald Reagan to George W. Bush or H.W. Bush to Bill Clinton, who claimed to be born again, to George Bush. You can go over 30 years when every president in the life of our nation claimed to be an evangelical Christian. And many of them, including Reagan and Nixon, had truly Christian godly mothers. And the church in America became strong, but as it became strong, it grew wealthy and it grew powerful. And today we have a very wealthy and somewhat powerful church, but the faith that caused it to come about that the word of God is true has been lost. And so it's big and wide and famous, but it's losing people day after day after day. And so I want to speak to you about the dangers of a false view of faith. Because what the church in America today believes about faith is wrong. And it's horribly wrong. And it makes this church part of a perverse and unbelieving generation. And if there ever was a a perverse and unbelieving generation, it's the American church today, which does not believe the word of God, even as it trumpets Jesus' name. So with that as a background, I want to come back to this and say, what happens? What leads these men who knew Jesus to become the weaklings, bearing the accusation of Christ of being perverse and unbelieving who do not have the power they once had. I want to begin by saying to you that as we look at this passage, we need to understand what it teaches about faith. And as last week I said that I did not agree with John Calvin in what he said about the reason for Elijah and Moses on the mountaintop this morning, I want to say to you, I absolutely agree with John Calvin when he says this about the failure of these disciples. John Calvin writes, the disciples wonder that the power which they once possessed has been taken from them because Jesus had sent them out to send out, to cast out demons and to work miracles. They wonder that the power which they once possessed has been taken from them, but they had lost it by their own fault. Christ therefore attributes this want of ability, this lack of ability to their unbelief and repeats and illustrates more largely the statement which he had previously made that nothing is impossible to faith. God, Christ had said, nothing is impossible if you believe. Calvin says, it is a hyperbolical mode of expression, no doubt, when he declares that faith removes trees and mountains. Do you understand what hyperbolical is? It means an overstatement. You're going to go, whoa, John Calvin, do you not believe the Bible? It is a hyperbolical statement, a hyperbolical mode of expression. When he declares that faith removes trees and mountains, 
But the meaning amounts to this, that God will never forsake us if we keep the door open for receiving his grace. He does not mean that God will give us everything that we may mention or that may strike our minds at random. On the contrary, as nothing is more at odds with faith than the foolish and irregular desires of our flesh, it follows that those in whom faith reigns do not desire everything without discrimination, but only that which the Lord promises to give. Jesus is telling his disciples here what faith can do, the power it can have, and he tells them that it can move a mountain. He said also it could move a tree into the heart of the sea, but here he says it's a mountain. Now, he could as easily have said to them that faith can move a salt shaker across the table, or that faith can cause a non-helium balloon to rise into the sky, or it can cause your hair to fall out, all of which would be miracles if it happened immediately and at the command of someone saying do this by by faith in God and his power these would be every bit as much miracles as moving a mountain but Jesus speaks of moving mountains to let us know the incredible power that faith has at its disposal when it operates as faith all right this is the power of faith it is able to move a mountain. Now, Jesus could have said faith can raise the dead, right? And raising the dead, well, that was something that Jesus had already done, isn't it? And so that's not as special a thing to say because they've already seen the widow's son raised and other people raised. So he doesn't say faith can raise the dead. He says faith can can move a mountain because he needs to startle them he wants them to see something Jesus speaks of moving mountains to them to, to explain the greater extent of faith's power than what they have experienced now Jesus could say faith can stop the rotation of the earth or even move it backwards on its axis but of course they would say oh yeah we know that because God did that for Joshua and so it wouldn't be an incredible thing to them, would it? Jesus could say something remarkable about the power of faith, like faith can dry up the ocean. But if he said that to you or if he said it to this crowd, they might object to that saying, yes, yes, I know. It did that for Moses at the Red Sea. And Moses, again, dried up the river by faith. And so tell me something I don't know about faith. And so if I'm trying to convince you of the power of faith, I might say to you, well, faith can get you a great wife. Those of you who want a wife. And at that point, some of you would perk up your ears and go, really? Well, that, that I want to try. Others of you would say, well, I have faith, but I don't have a wife. And then there would be some of you who would say, well, I know that. Don't tell me something new because I found that out years ago. So Jesus here is saying something hyperbolic, something way out there, way, way out there that he intends to have everyone go, whoa, I've never seen that. You understand? He's trying to show them how incredibly powerful faith is. He could have said faith can call a comet out of the sky, but some might object, well, you did 
You've already done that, Jesus, with the wise men. They followed a comet or a star. He might say, faith can defeat an army. But of course, faith had done that. It had done that with the Midianites. It had done that with David against the Philistines. He might have said, faith can make water into wine. And certainly that's a great miracle, isn't it? But people would say, yeah, I know that. I've heard that. Or he might have said, faith can give you when you think it's hopeless a husband. But of course, you know the story of Ruth and Boaz. So you are not caught by surprise by that statement. He could say, faith can call down fire from heaven. But I know you know the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, don't you? And you know that Elijah did call down fire from heaven by his faith. And so it's not a surprise to you if Jesus says, you can call down fire from heaven by faith. Jesus could say, faith can cause you to throw your fishing line into the water, to pull out a fish, and in that fish's mouth find gold sufficient to pay your taxes. And you'd say, wow, that's something. But the disciples might say that in the crowd on this occasion, but you wouldn't because you know the very next story in Matthew is of Jesus doing exactly that, right? So that's not going to mean much to you. So Jesus says, faith is able to move a mountain. Now it is hyperbolic, but it is hyperbole of the divine sort. Not that it can't happen, nor that God lacks the power to make it happen. God did all these other things that are every bit the equal of causing a mountain to be thrown into the heart of a sea. But this is an evergreen example of what faith can do because none of us have seen it and none of us ever will likely see it. Because there is no reason in God's economy for this to happen. So it continually surprises us, though we have seen equally great miracles in our lives. The Bible is full of such great works of faith. Now, the reason that it will likely never happen in your life or mine, that we will say, let, a, let that mountain rise up and be cast into the sea, is that faith is not Aladdin's lamp. Faith does not exist as a means of you achieving your greatest desires and overcoming a reluctant God because you have more power than he has. And you, by your belief, can force his hand to do what you want. Faith is not Aladdin's lamp. If there is a reason that's consistent with the will of God, for the glory of God, for a mountain to be moved into the heart of the sea, God may give you that thing. But you don't do it just because you want to prove your own power. It will never happen. So does God actually respond to faith? Does faith actually work remarkable things by God's power? Absolutely. But we need to understand what faith is when we talk about faith's power. And we need to get away from the conception of faith that I've been talking about. That faith is commanding God and that he will respond. And really, belief in self, if we're going to understand the power of faith in God. The American church is in love with faith and that's a faith that's in self. And it has become a perverse and unbelieving generation because it sees itself as the power rather than God as the power. 
So I have four points I want to make about faith, what constitutes true faith. The first point is that faith is ineradicably tied (laughs) to the will of God. Faith seeks God's will. Faith is in line with God's will. Faith must be in God and what he wants and not in yourself. So the Bible consistently tells us that faith is not gratification of what you desire, not you getting what you want. It is you seeking what God wants and God giving you what he wants and what you want. This is what Jesus teaches. He says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things, the things of the world, will be added to you. Seek God. Seek God. Seek his will. And you'll find that you're given so many of the things you want. But faith seeks the will of God. If faith is first assuming you can do something by God's power and then going out and attempting to do that thing, saying, I can do it, rather than God wills it, well, the disciples had faith because they thought they could do it. What's deficient in their faith if it's just saying, I can do this by God's power? There's nothing deficient if that's the definition of faith. But they failed because they don't have faith. So they went out and tried to do it in front of a crowd. It's a remarkable truth that the great apostle Paul, the man who so often healed people, who rose from at least the appearance of death after having been stoned in Lystra, left for dead, got up, walked right back into the city. Was it a miracle? I think it was who survived shipwreck, beatings, and actually raised a dead man, Eutychus, to life, that this man who worked miracles, who had power, who saw the power of God to bring him out of jail, to bring him through beatings and through great trials, at some point in his life is visited with a physical condition that causes him at least disability, if not ongoing pain. He calls it a thorn in the flesh, which seems to indicate a chronic irritant in his life, a very a very minor but major pain. And so this worker of miracles and this recipient of miracles prayed for healing to God and God responded back to Paul, the miracle worker, the man who had raised the dead. And he said, no, for my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Did Paul lack faith? Absolutely not. Did Paul get what he wanted? No. Did he get something that was greater than what he had asked God for? Yes. God said, my power is going to be made perfect in your weakness. Out of your weakness, the glory of my kingdom is going to appear to people. Now, if you want what God wants, you will always get it. But if you want what you want and you call that faith, well, you are a perverse and unbelieving generation. God's will is at the center of faith. And so Paul goes on and writes, Most gladly, therefore, I boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. You want power? Well, then be willing to be weak 
and to seek God. Be willing not to have all the money you want. Be willing not to have your kids be the brightest and best. Be weak. Be weak in all the ways you don't want to be weak, just like Paul. Be weak and say, God, I trust you. And then you can say, most gladly, therefore, I will boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, I am strong. Are you weak? Have you accepted weakness? Or is faith, as you understand it, given to us to make you strong so that you don't have to be weak? Really, this is the American definition of faith today. I don't ever have to be poor. I don't ever have to be mocked. I don't ever have to go through weakness because I have faith. But it wasn't how our church, the evangelical church, began. It was people who were willing to be mocked. It was women like Nate Saint's wife, his widow, who was killed as a missionary, who went right back to the people who killed her husband as a missionary and spent her life with them. That was weakness. That was faith. That was glory. That was power. So, faith must attach itself to the will of God and not the will of man. Faith accepts weakness. Second, we must understand that faith... Uh, let me say, though, about that first condition... Is this the problem with their lack of faith? Is this why they lack faith? Are they seeking to do something that's against the will of God? What do you think? Well, if you look at what Jesus does, you have to say it wasn't against the will of God for this demon to be cast out, right? It actually was the will of God to heal this boy. And when Jesus says, you perverse and unbelieving generation, you men of little faith to them, it's not because he didn't want that boy healed. Jesus goes immediately to heal the boy before he does anything else. That was the will of God. The will of God is always to help, always to give strength, always, always to help the weak. It may not be our will, but it is the will of God. So this is not the problem with their faith, is it? It's not against the will of God. You may say, ah, there's something going on there. Maybe they were doing this just to look like they were cool. And that could be. But it's, again, that's not what Jesus says to them. And we'll come to what Jesus says is deficient in them in a bit, okay? Second thing we see about faith is that faith acts. Faith is not mental assent. It's not mental recognition. Mental recognition is belief of a kind, but it's not true faith. True faith does not just agree mentally. True faith will always go beyond the mind to involve the body because if it stays in the mind, it's not faith. It's not true faith. True faith will act on what it knows in what it understands of God. So I am thrilled by a story in the Bible of Elisha, the prophet who succeeded Elijah and and who in many ways surpassed him in his works and his power. Elisha had been given a room in a house by a a wealthy Shunammite woman who believed in God. She and her husband created a room for the prophet to live in, this man who didn't have money and who lived for the, the kingdom of God. She and her husband gave him a room for him to live in, an upper room. Well, 
at some point, this woman was uh, childless. Elisha said, you will have a child. She had a boy, a little boy. It was the great joy of her life that she had had this son. At some point later, that boy comes in and says, my head, my head, and he falls down dead. And the mother sends word to Elisha, says, is it because of my sins that you gave me a son so that my sins would be brought to my mind that by his death? Did you give me this great joy so that it would be all the more clear to me that God is not for me? Right? Elisha runs back to the house. She had had the boy taken to the prophet's room and laid out on his bed, on Elisha's bed. Elisha runs back to the house. He runs up to the room and there's the body of the boy. And with that body lying on the bed, we're told that Elisha lies down on the body of the boy. He threw himself on the body of the boy. It says the body grew warm, but there was no life. So Elisha got up. And I thought to myself, what would you do? You've tried, you've laid down. Obviously he's praying and the boy grows warm, but nothing. So he gets up. The Bible tells us he walked around the house, once back, once forth. I mean, I'm sure he's praying. I'm sure the widow sees it. She knows that he's failed. Do you go up again and try again? Or you just say it's not God's will? But Elisha walks once back, once forth, we're told in the house, goes back up in the room, lies down again on the body of the boy, and prays again. And you think, that man put himself out at the very edge of the cliff in faith. Because that widow's looking to him for something. And he's proclaiming, I'm going to do it by going there and doing this. By walking around, he's saying, I'm going back and trying again with God. Imagine the courage, the, the faith that let him go that far in, in bringing expectations of power on himself. He lies down on the boy, says that the boy, at some point, the second time, sneezes seven times, and then he sits up. Now, would it have been faith if Elisha had not gone a second time and laid down on the body of that boy and prayed again? No, it wouldn't have been, would it? That boy would not have risen. There wouldn't have been the sneezes. There wouldn't have. Faith acts. Faith acts. It doesn't just think. Elisha could have stayed where he was when the servant came to tell him the boy had died and said, well, God, I'd like you to do this. You know, I really would like to see it happen, but you're sovereign. Do what you want, God. I, yeah, I, who am I? Faith acts. And this is... This is a real problem. Some time ago, I was talking to Cheryl, a problem in our church, in our world, a problem that you young men in the pastor's college I want to talk to about. Some time ago, I was talking with Cheryl about the need for ambition in those who serve God as, as shepherds and pastors. I think ambition, if, if faith is a coin, belief is one side, ambition is the other. You know, belief is saying I believe, ambition is acting on it. Maybe the one side is prayer, the other side ambition. I don't know. But godly ambition leading to action is essential to faith. In my early days in Toledo as a pastor, 
I didn't enjoy my church. I didn't enjoy my life. But I would say, well, if God wants me in another church, if God wants me to leave here, then someone will come and call on me and ask me to go. So I'm going to only consider going if God makes it so clear that the door is open and I must go through it that, that I have to do it. Otherwise, I won't do it myself. And I describe this as humility. I'm being humble. I'm not trying to find big things. I'll only go if God opens the door and makes it obvious that I must make a move. I won't do anything. Cheryl, as we were talking about this, reminded me of what I used to say as a young pastor of this. We were talking about the need for ambition, and she asked me, so would you say you were sinning back then, David? And I looked at her and I said, oh, absolutely. That was sinful. My brother was critical of my attitude those years. He said, David, that's not how God works. Faith moves. It doesn't wait. When she asked me that question, I was shocked. But then I realized, yes, it was sin. It was pride. It was demanding that God move first rather than running to the boy myself. And ironically, as I was thinking about it, it struck me that that attitude in me finally ended only the year that my younger brother died and I said, I can't be in a denomination anymore which says that Jesus is not the only way to salvation. So I came back from seeing my younger brother near death and I said, Jesus is too important. I'm leaving whatever you men do to the elders. And out of that flowed this church. Ambition is central to faith. Moving and acting are essential. So ambition, the will of God, um, knowing that it's God's will rather than your will. Ambition, acting. Then third, faith is not selfish. There's a, this is important to realize about the faith that moves mountains. If what you seek from God is only for your benefit, only something you want because it's selfish, well, James speaks to you. The brother of Jesus says to you, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask, okay, when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. How many of the things that we're going to God for are things that we really want for our own pleasure? The Bible says you're not going to get things that are just for your own pleasure. It says, seek the kingdom of God and you'll get your pleasures. But if you seek your pleasures, you're a friend of this world. Don't seek earthly mammon, earthly wealth. Seek God and his riches and God will provide for you, the Bible says. Our pleasures are not worthy of our prayers. And yet our pleasures are often what we ask God for. God does not grant selfish prayers. God will not give you what you seek merely because you want it and it's a worldly pleasure. The way you can be certain that what you seek in faith is not selfish is that it follows a command of God. Now, I want to show you something, how a command of God and a, a promise of God can be a test of God rather than a, an act of faith. Jesus is being tempted by Satan one of the three temptations, the middle one, he's taken to the top of the mountain, or top of the temple, excuse me, and he's, he's, Satan says to him, throw yourself down from here. Prove to everyone that you're the son of God. And he quotes Psalm 91:11, which is 
a promise that God will watch over his son, his Messiah. And, and Satan says to him, throw yourself down. God will give his angels charge over you to guard you in all your ways. So he's quoting a promise of God. Jesus responds back to Satan and says, the word of God says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, don't take that passage about a mountain being thrown into the heart of the sea and think that God's going to do that for you just because you want to prove you're something. But what's fascinating is that when the three temptations are over and Jesus has done his 40 days of fasting that preceded the temptation, we read in the Bible that God sent his angels and they ministered to Jesus. And so that very verse is fulfilled when it's not a test of God. God does give you what you want. So faith requires that you be in accord with God's will. It requires taking action. It requires something more than than just your desire. It requires a command of God. But here we come. And in all these ways, the disciples, we would say, had they had they weren't trying to do this for themselves maybe for their pride maybe that's it's not what Jesus accuses what Jesus says to them at the end is this in Matthew 17 21 this is where they fell down what more does their faith require the final thing necessary Jesus makes his disciples aware of when he says but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting now if you are looking at your Bibles, you'll see brackets around that verse, and you'll read perhaps the footnote below those brackets that says that early manuscripts don't contain that verse. And you may wonder, should I preach on this? Should I make a point on it if the early manuscripts... I don't like those footnotes, and I don't like those brackets. But if you want to exclude that verse from our consideration, all you need to do is go to Mark's account of the same event. And you'll find that Mark writes that following their failure, the disciples asked Jesus... Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. So Mark contains the same thing. It doesn't say in fasting, but he says the exact same thing, and there's no questions about the text in Mark. They lack prayer. Now, does this mean that they didn't pray to God on that moment? Does this mean that they needed to take a month and pray and fast, and maybe that demon would go out? Well, no. We see throughout the book of Acts and throughout the ministry of Christ and throughout their own ministry when they are casting out demons earlier that they don't spend a week in prayer and fasting and then cast out demons, right? Paul is walking and he sees this demon-possessed girl and he says, get out of her, right? Jesus speaks to the Gadarene demoniac and says, you get out, the legion of demons in him. God has that power. What he's saying here is that Disciples, you men who love me and, and claim to be following me, you're not doing what I've been doing. Remember how many times Jesus would go out at night and he'd pray, but he'd be alone. He'd fast, but the disciples didn't fast. When they did come with him, they'd fall asleep. They fell asleep instead of praying with him in his most dire hour. They were not men of prayer. They were not close to God. They did not fast. But when they want to show their power, they go like men of prayer to God and say, give me. 
If you are not praying to God consistently, building a relationship with God, knowing God in your life day by day, don't go on the fancy occasion and expect him to give you what you pray for. This comes out by prayer, Jesus says. It's not like they needed to spend a week in it. It's that they have not been praying. If you want to know why your life seems to lack the power of God, look at your prayer life. Look at your fasting life. See whether you have been doing what Jesus says you must do to be able to cast a mountain into the heart of the sea. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises it contains. But Father, we know that these promises are only given in accord with your word. They're not ours to manipulate, to make into our promises, to make into our conditions, to fulfill our desires. They are yours. Father, make us dependent on you in faith and prayer so that we are following your promises and close to you so that our prayer does move mountains. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.